Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17, and this morning we'll be in verses 16 through 34. Now, when last we left our beleaguered Apostle Paul, uh, that sounds a lot like, uh, uh, like the Adam West Batman uh, TV series, you know, when you start a new episode. When last we left our caped crusader, he was, and maybe you're starting to feel like that, but that's kind of how Acts is, right? It's scene after scene, episode after episode in the life of the church. Uh, and as fun as it is to watch Adam West uh, save the city of Gotham uh, as the hero Batman, it's all the more exciting to see Jesus save the souls of men and women who come to faith in the gospel and Acts. And so when last we left our beleaguered Apostle Paul, he had been uh, sort of forced out of the town of Berea as those opposing Jews from Thessalonica had traveled down to Berea and uh, made it very difficult for him to stay there. So the brothers in Berea sent him away by boat to Athens. And when he arrived in Athens, he then sent word for Timothy and for Silas to join him. What we will see here uh, today in Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 34 is what happened when Paul went to Athens. We will see Paul and the Athenians in conversation together uh, about the gospel. In Paul's preaching in Athens, as we'll see here in these verses today, we'll find the apostle shaping his message to fit the, both the experience and the culture of the Athenians in order to make the clearest and most understandable presentation of Christ that he can to their culture. Now, uh, Chris is going to put up a, a map for us. It's a map that you've seen before of Paul's second missionary journey. We have, if you look to the uh, screen on your left, and you can find the little bouncing red dot there, I'll try to point out some things. Again, we've seen Paul started here uh, in Antioch in Syria. He made his way west and then north here to Troas and then uh, ultimately to Philippi, which is up here at the very top of the map, uh, where they spent quite a bit of time uh, in Philippi sharing the gospel. And from there, they moved on to Amphipolis and Apollonia and then on to Thessalonica where we saw them last week and to Berea and now Paul has been sent away by boat through the Aegean Sea uh, down to the southern tip of Uh, of the uh, sort of European continent here to uh, Athens. Now, Athens, about four or five hundred years before the day of Paul, uh, was an incredibly influential city full of philosophers and poets and all sorts of wonderful cultural things. It was the home to and named after uh, the the goddess Athena. And it was a home to a major shrine or major temple in her honor. And not just of Athena, but of many other gods as well. There was much idol worship in Athens Uh, long before Paul ever got there, sometime here uh, in the late 40s, early 50s A.D., now, as Paul travels to Athens and sees all of this idolatry and, and engages a philosophical, poetic, very uh, cultural elite uh, kind of society and interacts with them with the gospel, declares the gospel to them, we can learn today from what we see and how we see Paul preaching from his interaction with the Athenians how to engage with the, with, uh, how to engage with the gospel cultures and peoples who have little or no biblical reference point from which to preach. The Athenians had virtually no, while there was a synagogue there, had virtually no Christian or, or, or significant Jewish influence. They had almost no biblical witness or background uh, for, for Paul to draw on in his gospel preaching. And so Paul has to employ some different methods with the Athenians there. Now, as we look at Paul's method, I would hope that we would learn from his example 
how to engage effectively and to preach compellingly to those who have vastly different worldviews and religious convictions than we do. We've even seen on several different uh, Sunday mornings, as I've cited, uh, different research uh, studies here and there, particularly from the Pew Research uh, Organization, very reputable research firm, that, that people in America particularly are becoming less and less religious and less and less likely to, to even associate or affiliate uh, with any particular religion. Rather, people are, are kind of creating, the, and, and all at the same time, people are not becoming less spiritual, if that makes sense. So, so we're we're becoming less, spirit, uh, less religious as a nation, but not less spiritual. Instead, rather than people gleaning their doctrinal beliefs and their spiritual convictions from uh, either from the Christian church or from any other uh, formal religion, people are kind of hodgepodging their own beliefs together. We find ourselves in a context similar to Paul in Athens, where there, there is a, a very little biblical reference point from which to preach the gospel in our current culture. And, and we can learn some things from Paul here as he preaches in Athens in Acts 17. I hope that you have found your way to Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Would you stand with me as we read God's word and honor him by it? <clears throat> Luke continues writing uh, this history of the apostles and their work. He says, Now, while Paul was waiting... For them, for Timothy and Silas in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish, therefore, to know what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along, and for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
God bless us, we pray, as we read and study your word this morning. You may be seated. So here we have Paul in a very philosophically saturated city of Athens, culturally elite, and there are a lot of things going on in this text this morning. My intention as we work through this text together is to uh, explain what's happening in the text and then at the end give some points of application, uh, some points of, of, of even life practice that you can begin to do to emulate, even to learn from the example of Paul as you seek to share the gospel with others uh, in the world around you and others who have a differing worldview. Let's begin in verse 16 with what Paul saw and with what he felt. As Paul goes into Athens, we find that what he sees are idols everywhere. Verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. One scholar has said that in that day it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That's how full of idols this city was. You know the old saying, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. In Athens, it's like gods and idols everywhere, but not a one can speak. The city is full of idolatrous worship, idols to all sorts of of false gods, uh, gods of the Roman and Greek pantheons, just littered about the city. That's what Paul sees. But did you see what Paul felt? The text says that his spirit was provoked within him. The word that is used here in English is paroxysm. That's the only time in my life I've ever used that word, and I will probably not ever use it again. But what it means is this, severe, this, this sensation of severe emotional distress coupled with uh, an anger or a zeal for what is right. Okay? So that's the feeling that Paul has in his heart as he walks around and sees the city that is full of idols. Now, some of us may, and, and rightly think, that Paul's the provocation of his spirit is mostly characterized by anger, anger over the idolatrous cult worship, this idolatrous insult to the holiness of God. There are false idols all throughout the city, and that just makes Paul, who knows the one true God, incredibly angry. And in some sense, that's true. Paul is zealous for the true worship of God. Paul is, is enthusiastic about knowing and worshiping God in truth. And so when he sees God being worshiped falsely, he's angry about it. But Paul being provoked in his spirit, isn't, isn't the, the word that's being used doesn't speak just to anger. It, it also speaks to a sense of, of brokenness. Paul is not just angry about this idolatrous worship of false gods, but he's also brokenhearted for the ignorance of the people who are worshiping these empty idols. Paul's angry because God's image and his worship is being defiled. But he's also brokenhearted because these people are doing it and not even knowing how, how uh, disastrous, how, how uh, just uh, terrible and damaging their idol worship is. Paul is brokenhearted for these people who do not know God in truth. That's what Paul saw and what he felt. Friends, is, is you encounter the world around you and you see the various different maybe idols that people worship, maybe not carved or graven images, but things that people are giving their lives, giving their devotion to. When you see that, are, are you simultaneously uh, brought to some sense of anger for, the, for your zeal for the right worship of God and yet also brokenhearted for those who are worshiping what they do not know? I hope that your response to the, the world and the various idols around us would be like Paul, 
that you are zealous for God to be known in truth and worshiped rightly, but that you are also brokenhearted, that, that your compassion for those who do not know Jesus, who do not know God in truth, would break your heart in, in such a way that, that you see the, the damaging effect of their uh, ignorant idolatry, and that that would break your heart. And, and in having a broken heart, not, not desire to judge them, judge the, the world around us for their idolatry, but, but to compassionately, graciously, patiently take them the gospel of Jesus, the light and the truth of salvation in his name. We see what, what, what Paul saw and felt, and we also see in verses 17 through 21 where Paul went. Paul goes to uh, three places here in this text. He first goes to the synagogue. Verse 17 tells us, and that's what Paul does everywhere he goes. Everywhere there's a synagogue of the Jews, Paul goes there first. We know from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, as Paul there writes to the church in Rome, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so everywhere he goes, where there are pockets of, of God-fearing, worshiping Jews, uh, Paul goes to those people first with the gospel because he knows that they are those who, who should be the most primed to receive the truth of God's Messiah. So he goes there and he reasons in the synagogue from the scriptures as we've seen him do from place to place. But then he also goes, we find, to the marketplace. The Greek word for this is the agora. Now, the agora was more than just a marketplace of goods. It was also a marketplace of ideas, a marketplace of politics and even philosophy. It was kind of the common space in town where everybody would go to do business, to have conversations, to debate competing philosophical ideas of the day. And it was every day we see that Luke tells us that Paul goes to the Agora, to the marketplace, goes to that place to reason with the Athenians. So he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbaths to reason with the Jews who are there. And then every day during the week, he's in the marketplace also reasoning with the Athenians. It's entirely possible, we know from Acts chapter 18, that Paul is a tent maker by trade. He, he's not just a preacher, he also knows how to work with his hands. It is possible that Paul took to the marketplace to find other tent makers as well, either to work with them to finance his ministry habit or to simply develop relationships for sharing the gospel with other tent makers. We're not sure, but it's entirely possible that, that it was Paul's initial intention in going to the marketplace. But while he's there, he finds all these other people who are worshiping all these false gods, who think all these other things about what the divine is, and he begins to reason with them. As he's there in the marketplace, in the Agora, he meets two leading groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I want to explain a little bit about who these uh, groups are, just so you can have kind of a working knowledge of, of these two. The Epicureans were disciples of the philosopher Epicurus, which just makes sense, right? And they were uh, consummate materialists. That is to say, they believed that all of life, all of existence was in what is material and physical, the atoms and molecules that make up things in the universe. And since everything is bound up in what is physical and material, there is no reality uh, to, the, the, to the spiritual side of things. That is to say, there is no spirit, there is no soul. All we know of life is, is what we have in this physical body. And when we die, that's it. When we die, uh, life is over. There's no resurrection from the dead. There's no life after death. These Epicurean materialists uh, uh, did not believe in anything beyond this current life. And because of that, they sought to increase, to maximize pleasure in this life. It makes sense, right? If this physical life is all that you have, you might as well make the most of it. And so if we were to sort of oversimplify the philosophy of the Epicureans, it might would be something like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. 
Have fun today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you die tomorrow, you're done. That's it. So think of all the things you would have missed out on. The other group, the Stoics, are quite different than the Epicureans. The Stoics were not materialists, but they did have some sense, they did have some longing for uh, the divine. And they, what they would uh, qualify as the divine or the divine spark in all things is what they called the logos, L-O-G-O-S, if we were to transfer that into uh, English uh, letters, the logos. The logos, logos is a Greek word that, that very basically means word or can also mean reason or, uh, or rationale. It's the word from which we uh, get our word logic today. The Stoics were seekers of the divine logos, and they were panentheists. That is to say, they thought that the spark of God, the spark of the divine, was in everything in creation. Right? That might sound uh, somewhat similar to maybe some, um, some Buddhist philosophies or something like that, that all of us have a little bit of God within us. That's kind of how the Stoics saw the world. And as seeing that the divine spark lived in each person and, and all throughout the cosmos, they sought to explain through philosophical and logical proofs the way that the logos, this divine reason for existence, this divine governing principle, how the logos governed the universe. They wanted to prove how that worked. They wanted to discover the, the workings of the logos. Now, they were not materialists. They did believe in something spiritual, But they believe that after death, only the spirit, only the soul survived. So you have these two competing groups there. And and if I could compare them to to, uh, uh, modern uh, philosophies, I might might would say that the Epicureans are kind of like your modern-day hedonists, right? Just get everything you can, can, enjoy pleasure as much as you can today, uh, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Whereas the Stoics might be a little bit more like our modern-day skeptics, those who are trying to explain the workings of the universe through science and mathematics and those sorts of things. Although the Stoics did have this pursuit of, of of the divine that maybe skeptics today don't so much. Paul reasons with these two groups in the Agora, in the marketplace. And I think it's interesting what we find of what they think about Paul. Paul is reasoning with them, but they think Paul is, as Luke says, a babbler. Now, the word that Luke uses there could be translated literally a seed picker. So like a chicken goes around in the yard uh, when he's eating, just picking up seeds kind of at random. There's no system to it. Uh, there, there's no overarching principle or reason for why a chicken picks a, a certain seed and, and eats it over another. So they think that this chicken-headed Paul is just picking up random uh, theological thoughts and, and absorbing them without any sort of coherent reason because the gospel that he's preaching doesn't fit their worldview. It doesn't fit the way that they see the world and the cosmos. So they call him a babbler, a chicken-headed seed picker, because he speaks of what they call foreign divinities. Now, there's only one divinity that Paul is really speaking about. He's only speaking about the one true God who is uh, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world and was raised again from the dead. But they think, these Athenians, because they think in such strange uh, Greek and Roman uh, uh, pantheonic types of uh, worldview, that, that Paul is actually preaching two different gods. Jesus, this uh, male god who, who could potentially be counted among the pantheon of Greek divinities, and his female divine consort called the Resurrection. So the, the people in Athens are just thoroughly confused about what Paul is saying because that's how, I mean, the gospel that he's preaching is so new. It's challenging their worldview at every point. They decide 
though, that hearing something new, and as verse 21 says, they spend all of their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, they decide, this is kind of interesting, let's, um, uh, let's just hear what he has to say. And so they take Paul to the third place that he goes, which is called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is this sort of a court on a hill in Athens where leading philosophers of the day would meet. Some scholars think there were maybe about 30, uh, 30 philosophers um, and, and uh, sort of elite people in total that would meet in this place to discuss competing philosophies of the day, maybe even hold court over the city. There's some debate as to whether Paul is being tried uh, by the Athenian Areopagus for his theology or whether they just want to hear him preach. Um, The text doesn't tell us one way or the other, but it's a place of significance and a place where significant ideas are exchanged and taught. And so the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics take Paul there so that they can hear more. Now, in verses 22 through 34, when Paul gets to the Areopagus, we see and hear and read what Paul said. So we see what Paul uh, saw and felt as he goes to Athens. We take notice of where he went. He went to where people were. And now we hear uh, what Paul said, which is essentially biblical truth for Godless hearers, hearers who do not have a God. In verses 22 and 23, Paul essentially says in his sermon, this is what I see among you. This is what I see. And with respect in his voice, Paul notes that the Athenians are a religious, maybe even superstitious people. I see that you are in every way very religious, Paul says. And Paul doesn't judge them for their religiosity, for their superstition, but simply and deferentially notes that this is what he has observed about them, and and what he has observed is important to them. He's worshiping the gods, knowing something about God is important to you. It's so important that even in your religiosity, he says, even at your attempts to worship the divine in, in as true a sense as you can, that you even have an altar to a God that you don't yet know. An altar to an unknown God. This is what I see, Paul says. You're a very religious people. You are seeking for God. You are seeking the divine. Now, this is what I see, but Paul says in verses 24 through 29, this is who I know. What Paul says to the Athenians is that what you proclaim to be ignorant of, this God that you do not know yet, is not a what, but a who. And I want to tell you who this who is And so we have the bulk of Paul's sermon here in verses 24 through 29. And I just kind of want to trace the the argument that Paul is laying out for these pagan Athenians. He says, this who that you do not know is the only true God who created everything in the cosmos. He's not one of many gods who, who has contributed to creation, but he's the only God who made all of it. And he is Lord, he is king, he is ruler over all of it. Now, being so powerful, Paul asks the Athenians, how could he who created all that we see and know, how could this omnipotent God fit into such a tiny marble house on a hill like you have? Logically, friends, it just doesn't make sense. And since he himself is the giver and the sustainer of life because he's created everything, how is it that we who have life and breath from him could in any real sense feed him or clothe him? Or give anything to him that would actually increase or benefit his existence. If we are so much less than God and so much subject to God, how is it that we have anything to really offer him substantively? Logically then, Paul says, if God is creator and Lord of all, then he is subject to none. And if we are dependent upon him for our life, 
then he can logically need nothing from us. This is the argument that Paul is making to these pagan Athenians who do so love logic. He moves in verses 26 through 28, continue with his argument, saying this, that God, who made all things, did not just make the cosmos, but he also made the human race. And he made them all from one man. We know biblically this man is Adam from Genesis. And Paul says he made that one man into into a diverse and globally dispersed race that have had rulers and boundaries and influential periods of time. Paul is saying to the people of Athens, God is thus Lord of creation and he is Lord of history. But even more importantly, he is Lord of all who himself desires to be known by his creatures. That's good news. These Athenians have been worshiping a God that they do not know. And Paul is saying, I'm preaching to you a God who wants to be known and who has made himself knowable to you. Paul notes here that there is in the heart of every man a desire to know God. And that's certainly true among the Athenians. A desire to know what is best, what is ultimate in, in the sense of the Epicureans. They're wanting the most out of this life. And Paul begins to say that, that, that to get most out of life, it's, it's not pursuing something, but pursuing someone. To the Stoics who are looking for the reason that there is anything at all, Paul is saying uh, it, it is not a divine spark. This is not an, an impersonal force that is holding the world together. It is the one true God who has made it all and who sustains it all. In the heart of every man is a desire to know God, but in our own human efforts, in our own sinful efforts, we can only grope around in the dark to find him. On our own, we are like blind people in a dark room looking for a needle in a haystack. By our idolatry, by our attempts to define God on on our terms, we have blinded ourselves to the reality of God's omnipresence, that is, his, his transcendent presence in all the cosmos. We have blinded ourselves even to the fact that God can be known. We are the ones who have blinded ourselves. We are the ones who have turned the lights off. We are the ones who have hidden the needle in the haystack. But in truth, Paul says, God is not far from his creatures. He's not far from each one of us. And so we see in verse 28, Paul doing a very interesting thing. Paul now turns from arguing from a biblical worldview, not turns, but, but uses to supplement his argument from a biblical worldview of how, how the scriptures say that God has created the world and how he works in it, to now citing some of the most popular philosophers and poets from Athens and, and from the Greek world to supplement his argument. He turns to two particular influential writers in verse 28, and very likely you have in your copy of God's word, um, these, uh, these verses kind of uh, uh, broken off as, as special quotations here. First, in verse 28, he cites the philosopher Epimenides. And then he'll cite later uh, the poet Aratus in order to make his case from, from those that the Athenian elite are aware of in respect that, that God is, in fact, this one that Paul is talking about. For even Epimenides, the first citation that we have in verse 28, even Epimenides acknowledged that human existence is dependent upon the divine. Epimenides is quoted as having said, In him, in the divine, we live and move and have our being. And even Aratus, though speaking of the false god Zeus, even Aratus recognized that mankind is in some sense the offspring of God, having said, For we are indeed his offspring. 
Paul looks to the leading philosophers and, and poets of the day to say, look, even these guys that you revere are aware of some of the things. that They're thinking on a trajectory that leads to the conclusions that I am making. In verse 29, Paul concludes his argument, saying, if the one true God is Lord of all, He's Lord of all creation. He's Lord of all humanity. He's Lord of all history. If all humankind is dependent upon him for all things, and if they are even his very offspring, being like him but subject to him, how in the world, dear Athenian friends, can he who is greater and most true and most living be anything like the inanimate, unliving, unmoving objects that litter this city, objects made of gold and silver and stone? If that's who this unknown God is, how can you ever hope to know him, to worship him in truth, in in ways that are contrary to his existence? Logically, God cannot be like these idols. Logically, Paul says, he must not be like these idols. And in fact, if that's the case, then to think of him as such, to think of God as being confined to a temple or confined to an idol, to think of him this way, to worship him this way, as an image of gold or silver or stone, must not only be contrary to his nature, but offensive to his very person. This is what I see, Paul says. You're a very religious people. This is who I know. That, that, that what you worship in ignorance is, is not a God who is far from you but very near. Not a God who is hiding in the shadows, but a God who has, who has burst through in the light of truth and wants to be known by you. So knowing these things, he concludes in verses 30 and 31, this is how to worship. This is what I see. This is who I know. Now, this is how to worship. These last two uh, verses of his sermon at this point, Paul points out that though the Athenians have ignorantly worshipped God wrongly for as long as Athens has been around, that God has graciously overlooked their error and he has not punished them as they duly deserve. God has not wiped them off of the planet for their idolatry, but he has patiently endured centuries of false worship until this point when the light of the gospel is able to break through into the darkness of their ignorance. Paul says, now that the knowledge of God is had in truth, now that you have heard who God is truly, You are now responsible. You are even culpable for your continued idolatry, Paul says. Now, to know God in truth is also to know how to truly worship him. A continuation of ignorance, to to continue in idolatry, worshiping things that they do not know, now for the Athenians is no longer a possibility because the truth is known. When you are confronted with a, a competing uh, claim to what is true in the world, you have to make a decision either to believe the competing claim or to hold fast to what you already believed was true. And now in Athens, there are competing claims to truth. On the one hand, you have the original claim that says God is many and and can be worshipped by idols and in temples and that sort of thing. And on the other hand, you have the competing truth that says, no, God is one. And he's greater than all those things. He's the creator of all those things, and he can't be worshipped that way. So Paul says, Athenians, which way are you going to have it? Because you can't hold on to both of these. You've got to choose one or the other. And if you choose the one, if you choose your previous way of worship, you are now guilty. You are now culpable and responsible for that continued act of sin. To continue doing what is wrong, worshiping in idolatry, even after ignorance is removed, is to no longer worship ignorantly, but to worship disobediently and rebelliously to stand also in judgment of the one whom, who, who has been offended. 
Now, in this case, Paul says, the one who has been offended by their continued idolatry is the true God who judges the continued sin of idolatry of all who have not repented. This judgment will come, Paul says, by the one whom God has appointed and has affirmed before all people by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul doesn't get to finish his sermon here, but we know where he's going. He's already been preaching in Athens about Jesus and the resurrection. We know that the one who's been raised from the dead here is Jesus. And and even if Luke doesn't record it here, we know that that is where Paul is going in his preaching. He is always going to get to Jesus, who is the, the centerpiece of all human history. He is the climax of God's redemptive work in the world and in the cosmos. We know Paul is getting to Jesus. But as soon as he brings up the resurrection... We read in verse 32 that those who heard of the resurrection of the dead, uh, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. Some of them mocked. And very quickly, there's, there's disarray at the Areopagus, and, and the group begins to be split. We know Paul is going to be talking about Jesus and the resurrection in his name. But he's interrupted because the people have heard yet once again something that their sinful ears just cannot tolerate. And while Paul has to leave the Areopagus that day, Without having seen any, any converts there in that, in that place, we do know from verse uh, 30, uh, uh, 33 and 34 that there are some who follow Paul, who want to hear more, who want to, to listen to his reasoning about the God who controls all of the universe, who want to know more about this Jesus and the promise of the rection. And among those that follow Paul out of the Areopagus that day are a precious and priceless handful who believe the gospel, who trust Jesus, who repent of their sins and are saved. Paul's time in Athens is not maybe as fruitful as his preaching in Thessalonica or in Berea or in Philippi, but it is fruitful nonetheless. And while we don't know of a a particular church that was planted there in Athens, we do know that there are believers there who will continue in faithfulness to Jesus Christ because of Paul's gracious, compelling engaging conversation with them about the God that they did not yet know. Many have said that, uh, that, that Paul's preaching in Acts 17 gives us a good model for, for uh, engaging people of secular worldviews and things like that. Uh, quite frankly, I, I think the, best exa- the only example Paul really gives us about specific preaching here is how to preach to uh, pagan Athenian philosophers from 2,000 years ago. So if, if you ever find yourself in that situation, uh, Bill and Ted show up at your door and they take you back in time, uh, you, can, you can pull out Paul's sermon from Acts 17 and you could preach that sermon and, and it would probably land pretty well with your hearers. So uh, I, I wouldn't recommend, while, while the, the logic and the argument that Paul is, is constructing here in Acts 17 is, is just par excellence, it, it is amazing. Paul is a smart, smart dude. Uh, while the argument that he puts together is really tight and, and just a, a very good argument, I would not say that you who are encountering secular or skeptical people today should just try to preach Acts 17 and expect uh, for there to be much fruit because Paul is speaking and tailoring his gospel message to a very specific group of people. It's helpful to us in some ways, um, but maybe not in, in specific ways. So rather, I want to pull from just some of the things that we see Paul doing to make application to our own lives about how we can graciously engage others with the gospel, especially uh, graciously in- engaging those people who have a very different worldview with the gospel. And you have five points here that we learn from Paul 
that we can apply to our own lives uh, there in your worship guides. And, and so follow along here. First, number one, open your eyes and soften your heart. Do you want to know how to engage people with a completely different worldview than yours, who, who may have no touch point with the Bible whatsoever? You begin by opening your eyes and softening your heart. Just like Paul, you need to learn to be an observer. You need to learn to be a student of the culture and the people who are around you. We must pay attention to the things that have captivated the hearts of those that we see most often and know best. Their lives may be full of idols that are not physically visible, and so we need to pray for spiritually enlightened vision to notice the patterns and pathologies of idolatry in their lives. Not all idolatry in the West, in America, is in the form of consumerism or the prosperity gospel, those, the, although those are two good examples. Not all idolatry is just evident in family schedules or TV-watching habits. Idols can be made of pride, arrogance, happiness, anger. Idols can be made of other emotions and even motives that are, are, are wrongfully disguised as love. And so we need to, to learn to observe the people around us and the culture that we're in so that we can, with eyes uh, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, understand the idols that are competing for the hearts of the lost people in our communities. We need eyes to see the idols that we are prone to make for ourselves and those that our culture is prone to make and to celebrate also. But we also need hearts that are softened with compassion for idolaters. It's all too easy to see, to see the idols that a nation or a culture makes for themselves and to be immediately judgmental of those things. We who, who know God in truth, it's very easy for us to, to sinfully assume that idolaters are not capable of being saved, that God doesn't even want to save them. In our zeal for the holiness of God, we are tempted to call down fire from heaven upon the proponents of the empty idolatries of the sexual revolution and, and of rights to abortion and to call down fire from heaven on all of the atheists, Right? My goodness, we see it so often, even on, on television stations that call themselves Christian, just wanting to call down the judgment of God upon all of the idolaters as though we're so much better. But we, like Paul, ought to have a zeal for God's holiness. But we also need to have our, our spirits provoked within us, not, not just in zeal to protect the worship of God, but also to be provoked in love and in compassion for the worshipers of these idols who are, who are themselves bearers of the image of God, like us, who are being led to hell by these deceiving ideologies. We need eyes to see the idols that compete against the true God for the worship of the hearts of men and women, and we need hearts that are softened by God's love for humanity to love them for God's sake and for their salvation. Amen. Open your eyes, soften your heart. Secondly, go where lost people are. Go where lost people are. Now, I, by nature, am not an extrovert. I can be around crowds of people. I enjoy being around and being with people, but I know the toll that it takes on me mentally and emotionally. Uh, most Sunday afternoons after I preach, I want to go home and sit in a quiet house and watch golf on TV or, or something. I just, want, I just need to be alone to get myself together again. I love being with you, um, but just the way that God has, ma has made me, as much as I love being with you, it takes energy for me to be with you, and some of you know what I'm talking about. Unless I'm a room full of extroverts and all of you just love being around people and you can't, stand not, you can't stand being alone. I don't know. I'm not an extrovert by nature. 
I like my alone time. I love being with people, but I also like my alone time. Now, whether Paul was an extrovert or an introvert, he never used any excuse not to be where people were. He never used any excuse to not be where lost people were. His love of Jesus, his knowledge of the salvation that Jesus gives, pushed him to be where people were day to day. He goes to those who are like him, to the synagogue, to the Jews there, and reasons with the scriptures, reasons with them from the scriptures to point them to Jesus. And he goes to the other. He goes to those who are not like him, to the Gentiles in the marketplace. I don't know if Paul was an extrovert or an introvert, but what I do know is that he took efforts to be where lost people were so that he would have opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul was where lost people were all the time. So Christian, what about you? How often do you find yourself willingly among and interacting with lost people? Like on purpose, making a decision to be around lost people. I'm not talking about simply being around lost people at work or at a sports game because you got to pick up your paycheck or you bought a ticket, but rather about the times where you intentionally, on purpose, decide to go where lost people are, not just to be around them, but to engage them in conversations and to engage in relationships with them. How often do you find yourself doing that, Christian? I'll ask the question a different way. When was the last time you consciously chose to be with and interact with people that you knew did not know Jesus with the hope and intention of turning conversations to the gospel? When was the last time you were around lost people on purpose? The philosophers of Athens the, uh, and, the, and the people next door to us today think God is something that must be groped around for in the dark. But we, like Paul, have the light of truth that shines into the darkness of the human mind and the hardness of human heart that teaches us that while we were hopelessly groping around for God in the blindness and the darkness that we brought onto ourselves, that he has graciously revealed himself to us in Jesus. We know the best news in the cosmos, that God can not only be known, but that he makes himself known, and that through his son Jesus. So make efforts. Be intentional about being where lost people are and engaging them with the gospel. So here, I want to um, give you some ways so that you have even less of an excuse not to do this. So I want to not only tell you to do it, but I want to equip you to do it with some ideas. Here are some ways you can intentionally go where lost people are. Okay, Number one, join a book club at your local secular bookstore. Those of you who like to read... Find a book club, join a book club, read a good book, make some friends, right? Look for opportunities to share the gospel. Secondly, frequent the same coffee shop at the same time every week. Make, a, make, uh, intention, make, make intentions out of your normal habits, normal routines of life to, to be where lost people are so that you can share the gospel with them. So if you get coffee every day on your drive to work, go get coffee from the same place every day. And don't go through the drive through go into the store and talk to a human being. Don't order from your phone, order with your mouth and pay there and interact with people who are there. Begin developing relationships with those who are working there and the other customers who frequent that place at the same time that you do. <clears throat> Organize a block party. That, that's like a blast from the past. Um, I, was, I was encouraged and, and challenged um, by one of our staff members, Becky Henderson, who told me that a couple weeks ago, I think, was National Night Out. And that is like a, a night where neighbors are supposed to go out into the streets and play in traffic. No, where they're <laughs> supposed to go out on their driveways and their sidewalks and meet your neighbors. Because we live in a world that is so, so 
governed and controlled by social media, that we actually have like very few real physical relationships. So National Night Out is an encouragement for people to get to meet their neighbors and grill out in the street and, and just have fun getting to know other people. Organize a block party like that so you can get to know your neighbors and develop relationships with them. You who are dog lovers, I won't speak to those of you who love cats, but those of you who are <laughs> dog lovers, take your dog to the dog park on a regular schedule. Go to the same dog park at the same time on the same days. Not just so your dog can be well socialized, but so that you can get to know the owners of other dogs. Image bearers of God who need to know him in truth. How about instead of buying, uh, uh, spending money, so so you're a sports fan, basketball or football fan, instead of uh, uh, spending a lot of money on like three select football games this season or basketball games, like you want really good seats for three games, how about instead of doing that, you buy season tickets in the cheap seats where everybody else buys their season tickets so that you can watch football and basketball and interact with the same people every single week. There's more. Go golfing by yourself. Man, somebody, that was, there's a collective groan. <clears throat> Go golfing by yourself and ask the, 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 uh, the scheduler to, to put you with a double or a group of three who, who needs one more to make a triple or a foursome. How about that? Go golfing by yourself on purpose, not to stay by yourself once you get to the course, but to golf with others. Even if you're playing nine holes and you're walking, you've got an hour and a half of almost uninterrupted time with another human being that you can be praying that that God would turn that conversation toward the gospel with. Look, there are countless ways to do this, to intentionally engage with lost people on a daily basis. But the point is this. We have got to go where lost people are if we really want to share the gospel with them. We must go to where they are. Make plans to go where lost people are. Thirdly, Seek to understand before being understood. Seek to understand before being understood. Paul sets such a great example for us here in Scripture on this point. The very way that Paul preaches at the Areopagus, by pointing to uh, nature and what can be understood about God from creation, uh, the the fact that he uh, has taken time to study their religiosity in Athens points to the, uh, the, the, the fact that he has become a student of the culture in Athens. His attention to their manner of worship taught him that there were gods that they felt they had not yet discovered. The fact that Paul even referenced pagan philosophers and poets in his sermon shows that in all of these ways and, and many more, Paul had taken time to learn what the Athenians think and believe and revere. Paul's a smart guy. He's a really smart, smart guy but he's also an excellent observer and learner of the culture that he is in. <clears throat> so when you engage in spiritual conversation with someone who you suspect does not believe in Jesus like you do, before expecting them to understand and hear the gospel, you ought to take time to understand where they are coming from first. Before using the Romans road evangelistic method, take some time to find out if the person you're talking to has ever even opened a Bible before in their life and even knows what Romans is. Learn about their worldview. Learn about their spiritual convictions. Seek to understand what they believe about God and life and death and right and wrong and worship. If you'll seek to understand before trying to be understood, you'll be exponentially more effective in sharing the gospel when you can do it in words and within a framework that others can understand as well. 
This is, preci- this is precisely what Paul is doing here in Athens. He gives a thoroughly biblical presentation of God and the gospel. But as you probably noticed in his sermon, he didn't do it by citing the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't do it with a Bible in his hands to the Athenians because to the Athenians, it wouldn't have made any difference. They don't see the Bible as an authoritative work. And I'm not saying we shouldn't use the Bible in our evangelism. Uh, We ought to. We ought to uh, use God's authoritative word as we share the gospel. But there are times where we, we need to know what the Bible says and can say it for ourselves before we point people to the word itself and thus further confuse the matter. Paul sought to, be, sought to understand the people of Athens before he expected them to understand the gospel that he was preaching. So you too seek to understand before expecting to be understood. Fourthly, that's third. Fourthly, think about the gospel from someone else's perspective. Think about the gospel from others' perspective. This point comes right on the tail end of the previous one. Once you have an understanding of a person's worldview, be it secular or sarcastic or cynical, once you have an understanding of a person's worldview, once you have an understanding of their spiritual convictions or, or even their lack thereof, you need to try to see the gospel from their perspective. You need to try to look at Jesus from where they're standing. Some, from where they stand, will see the gospel as one road among many to God. Others will see it as total foolishness. Others still will refuse to see the gospel at all from where they stand in their worldview and in their personal convictions. But if you can try at least to get a beat on how others are approaching or even perceiving the gospel, you can all the more effectively point them to see the gospel rightly. I want to illustrate this by something we experienced. Uh, I experienced with uh, one of my daughters not too long ago. A couple of weeks ago, we went out to the Petroglyph National Monument, and we took the short hike, the one you can do in 15 minutes, uh, but with children, it takes an hour and a half. Um, and so we're going through, we're looking at all the different petroglyphs uh, that are out there, and at one point, on the, uh, you go up to the top of the mesa, and then you come back down. On the way back down, uh, I saw one off to the side that I knew the girls had not seen, and so I grabbed our middle daughter, Ellie, and I said, Ellie, do you see that one over there? And, uh, and she looks, and she's like, no, I don't see it, because from where she's standing, it looks like I'm pointing over here, but I'm pointing over here, right? So what I have to do is, and you've probably done this with your kids before, come stand right behind her, get down to her level, and point to what I'm seeing. This is what we have to do with the gospel, with people who are lost and don't know Christ and have different worldviews from us. I'm not saying we adopt their worldview, but I am saying we try to see the gospel from their perspective so that when we point to Jesus, they don't think that we're pointing over here to something you know, totally out of sight, but to something that they can see so that we can direct their gaze spiritually and visually in the right direction. So understand where people are coming from, and then try to see the gospel. Try to see Jesus from where they are standing. And then once you've seen, or once you've taken time to think about the gospel from where they're standing, then you do what I just said, point number five. Point to Jesus from where they're standing. Don't just try to see and understand how they look at the gospel, but then point them to Jesus from where they're standing, and then eventually you'll have to move them to a proper perspective to see the gospel rightly. Our blessed brother Paul, having done all of this work of observing the Athenians, loving them, going to where they are, learning about them, thinking critically about the people and the worldview of those that he's trying to, to preach, uh, 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 the, those he's trying to preach to, he caps all of this off by pointing not just to a generic concept of God or to spirituality, but to a specific presentation of Jesus. 
That's where Paul's preaching is always headed. Straight to Jesus. Straight to the risen Lord who died for the sins of all men, Jew and Gentile, illiterate and philosopher alike, that we might go to him in faith and have forgiveness. Friends, when you have done the prayerful and loving work of humbling yourself to love the people that God has placed you among and to see the world through their eyes, you can all the more point to the gospel in a way that maximizes their ability to see Jesus clearly. But more than just the gospel message from there, you can help, to pe- help people to see Jesus clearly. Pointing to him more clearly, you can then help your lost friend to shift their perspective to see their competing worldviews and spiritual assumptions from the right perspective in light of who Jesus is. When you're able to move somebody to a better vantage point to Jesus, they can see how, how poor, how, how deficient their previous one was. This is hard work in evangelism, friends. This is really hard work in evangelism. To become a student of the culture around you, to, to learn the, how people think about the world and to understand it as clearly as they do and then to bring the truth of the gospel as a, not just a competing truth, but a better truth, a, a real truth to bear upon that. This is hard work. It's, it's not as simple as just going out and telling people Jesus saves because in a culture where people don't even know much about Jesus, that doesn't say a lot. In a culture where people don't even think they need to be saved from sin, saying Jesus saves doesn't say a lot. So we've got to be able to engage on a deeper, more intentional, e- even introspective and, 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 and uh, uh, um, see, I'm losing the word, and that's a, uh, that happens sometimes. From a cogent perspective, uh, an intelligible perspective, one that, that even is intellectual in some points. That was the word, and by the time I used it, it didn't make sense anymore. This is what Paul did in Athens, and it's hard work. It's tiring work, and, and you're probably tired just thinking about it. But you've already seen that among all the Athenians that Paul did this with, only a small handful believed. Paul did all of this work tried so hard, loved the people so much. And at the end of the day in Athens, there's only a handful of believers. But brothers and sisters, let me point you just a little bit further down the road to the moment when after having done all of this work, you in your own life, time and time again with multiple people in various situations, you finally get to the moment when one person does see Jesus clearly, when they do repent of their sin when they do trust in the Lord Jesus because of your love and your patience to suffer long in helping them to see Jesus rightly, is not that moment worth all the work and fruitless conversations that preceded it? Is not the small handful in Athens so much worth the work that Paul does to preach the gospel intelligibly to hundreds? I submit to you today that there is no greater payoff, there's no greater joy, there's no greater reward for the hard work that is done in blood and sweat and tears, given to, the point, given to point people to Jesus, than when even just one sees him, than when even just one trusts him, even just one turns from their sins and is transformed by King Jesus. There is great joy in heaven when that happens. And brothers and sisters, there ought to be great joy in our hearts when that happens, even if hundreds before that point did not respond in faith. Let us look forward to the joy that we have in seeing people trust Jesus because we've done the hard work that God has called us to, to shine the light of the truth of the gospel into a dark and deceived world. 
Christian, we have an example to follow in Paul as he preaches in Athens. But dear friend, if you're here this morning, you're one who would not characterize yourself as a Christian. You don't see the world the way that we do. Let me tell you today that you have, you have seen Paul and the Word of God point to who the true God is. You have even heard from my own mouth how God has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins, of your rebellion against the one true God who created you to know you and, and to be known by you, that you might love Him and worship Him. We, in our disobedience to God, have separated ourselves from him, the Bible tells us. And yet God, in his love for us, has not left us separate from him. He has taken pains to come to us. He does that in his son, Jesus. Truly God, fully God, fully man, lives a life without sin that not one of us ever lived. Jesus, the eternal son of God, then with human body dies on a cross, gives his life in the most torturous way imaginable in order to pay for the sins that we commit against God. The Bible tells us that what we earn for our sin is death. That's why there's death, destruction, brokenness in the world, because of our rebellion against God. God sends his son Jesus to live a life without sin, without rebellion against him, and in order that he might die to pay for our sins. Jesus did not stay dead. As Paul says, he was raised from the dead. And his resurrection from the dead is God's affirmation that Jesus is the one who will judge all people on the last day of whether they have had faith in him for salvation or they have rejected him and continue to walk in their ignorant, idolatrous ways separated from God. Friend, you who do not know Christ, who do not see the world this way, I would submit to you that there's no clearer way to see the world than through the lens of the Bible and through the lens of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way, the Bible says so, to know God than to trust his son, Jesus. He himself said he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through him. Dear friend, if you don't know Christ this way, I pray today would be the day of faith for you. That today would be the day that you see and, and, and recognize the sin in your life, how you have separated yourself from God by rebelling against his good and perfect plan for your life. And that you would desire to, like Paul encourages those in Athens to do, to believe Jesus, to turn from your sin, to trust him as king of your life, and to walk in faithfulness and obedience to him and with others that are following him also. In just a moment, I'll pray for us as we close this time of preaching. And we'll move into a time of response. And this time of response is for believers. It's for we who are Christians to, to remind ourselves of what we have heard to obey God and his word, to begin to apply the truths that we have just seen to our lives. But this time of response, friends, is for you too who do not yet know Christ. If you want to know Jesus in truth today, you use this time of response. I'll be standing here at the front. Uh, student minister Corey will be standing here as well. We would love to meet with you this morning. Be brave, be bold, step out of your seat, come talk to us. We want to talk with you about how to have confidence in your right relationship with God through Jesus, his son, who died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Let us pray.